Welcome back to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet, by God's providence, of course, only. It's been a long time since our last episode, so in case you've forgotten who we are, I'm Nick Quint. Hello. And I'm Thomas Horrocks, and we do apologize for our absence. Things have been more than a little crazy lately. Uh, I've been doing some significant travel, and uh, Nick, you've had quite a bit going on as well. What's been up with you? Well, for those who haven't heard yet, uh, Alice and I are expecting our first child. Uh, a little boy will be born uh, on St. Patrick's Day of this year, March 17th, give or take a week as things are want to be. Uh, woo Huh? Yep. I said woot woot. Yeah, woo, exciting. Woo. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty <laughs> cool. We're, we're excited. We are, uh, our entire place is covered head to toe with, um, unused nappies and diapers and toys. And, um, I'm already dreading the, 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 the prospect of having to raise my, my son in a world where the Maple Leafs are a very good team that never seem to win. And so I can't as, imagine the, the stress that that must put on you, you know, day and night. Are you, are you even sleeping? Um, no, but that's for other reasons, but <laughs> the, uh, the quite, I'm not looking forward to having to have that theodicy question about why God allows immense suffering for sports fans of, especially fans <laughs> of the Toronto Maple Leafs with him, but it'll be, uh, it'll be a good time. It's, um, we're looking forward to that and, uh, it's, it's been, well, I was going to say a long time coming, but it feels like a lot of things have been a long time coming. So yeah, so we're, we're just waiting for him to get here. And, uh, I also, had my uh, interview or exam with ordination council yesterday uh, for ordination to be uh, an American Baptist pastor. And as far as I can tell, I passed with flying colors. Um, there is uh, my ordination date is tentatively set for somewhere in April or May. All but, right. Yep. And so I will be ordained in probably a few months and all of that. And so it's just a matter of when I have the time to be ordained and all that sort of stuff in between swabbing my child and lecturing him about the finer issues in theodicy. All right. There you go. So it'll be come April or May, it'll be the, the Reverend Nicholas Quint. Yep. At this point, I will have to go back and get new business cards and all that sort of stuff. But that'll <laughs> be fun. Well, that's very exciting. Both of those things. So so excited for you and Allison with this upcoming baby. Um, of course you're you know you're going to name him Thomas Synergist Horrocks, but you know that's that's just a given. Oh, of course, um, yes. <laughs> uh but I feel like you maybe have left something significant out of your update. Uh didn't you recently have a new book that was released? Yes, uh I published uh a book pretty recently, December 6th I think was the day. Yeah. That's fantastic. So uh, you are now officially a published author, um, and you may or may not know this, but occasionally on this podcast, we interview published authors. Uh, so I may have to have you back um, on not as a co-host, but as a guest to discuss your new book sometime in the future. Um, but before we get there, can you give us like a two-minute summary of what your book is about? Well, sure. Uh, if, uh, if Dan Kent or others want to have me on, I, I won't like put up too much of a fight. Uh, in, in a nutshell, the book essentially argues for the Wesleyan distinctive, uh, or, you know, it's not necessarily an Arminian distinctive, but a Wesleyan distinctive of entire sanctification or what's often called Christian perfection. The idea that 
um, through the working of the Spirit and the um, willing of the uh, person who is allegiant to Christ, she can be made fully sanctified, be made fully, um, uh, she will be fully sanctified in this life. And so the idea being that the uh, desire for sin, the desire for things that are central or rather uh, opposed to God, uh, become something that is undone in the person's life. And so it, in essence, renders the person, as we would say, conformed entirely into the image of Christ. And that, and I argue that that can happen in this life. And I also argue a few additional points as kind of a way of integrating it theologically with Paul's other stuff. Uh, so for example, his view of marriage as something that has we might say cooperative sanct- sanctification, you know, uh, cooperative sanct, wow, I can't talk today. Co-op, it's, sanctification in that instance will be cooperative, although I don't think you can be, you have to be fully sanct, married to be fully sanctified, of course. In fact, I would argue the opposite very strongly. But the idea of that being, uh, an aspect of sanctification, um, in marriage, and also the idea of how entire sanctification or Christian perfection can be applied to issues of eschatology, you know, uh, if we have a view where God is making all things new, what room is then there for sin, death, and evil, and the powers, and all that sort of stuff that we kind of just assume will exist forever? And I argue that because of uh, Paul's vision of entire sanctification, as I argue it, that um, evil and death and sin and all that sort of stuff is undone in the life of the believer who's faithful to God. And also uh, in the future, there is no more such things as that. And so that's essentially what I argue. You can find it, I think, on Whitfenstock, their website for cheaper. It's called, what is it called? Oh, my gosh. Um, Thomas, what's it called? Um, the, oh, the perfection of our faithful wills. That's what I called it. <laughs> so, um, yes or no, somebody can get to the point where they no longer sin at all. Uh, yes, I believe that is, um, something Paul would have affirmed based on the material I see there. Doesn't okay. mean everyone would. Um, in fact, and I don't think it's something a lot of Wesleyans argue that it's instantaneous for some people or even many people. Um, I would argue it is most assuredly probably not instantaneous. Um, but, and I would also argue that, um, it is something that is a, a very vivid and difficult process. Um, I don't think it's something that, and also I would argue that it's not something that, uh, pardon me, um, for, for lack of a better word, can be that is in, in order for it to work the, the spirit needs to be involved uh, kind of sovereignly guiding this whole thing with of course our participation in it but you get I, I'm really reticent to um, argue legalistically for certain things that are involved with it right because legalism becomes a huge issue and I think the person who has been sanctified in Christ by the spirit, um, views it as a gift to be used to empower others in the church and others elsewhere and not as a gift for herself. And so it's one of those things, if I see someone saying, I've been fully sanctified, and it's about basically their pseudo-spirituality, my first thought is, yeah, that's that doesn't meet the criteria for what I see in Paul that would give us that sort of conclusion. So it's, in essence, you know, Christian entire sanctification is an argument against Christian legalism, but because of all things, we need to be wary of Christian legalism. And, of course, abuse, as we all know. That was a really long answer to a yes or no question. Well, yes. 
that sounds fascinating. I'm sure that I speak on behalf of all of our listeners, um, but certainly for me, Nick, uh, congratulations. I mean, that's writing a book is a huge accomplishment, um, and I know that there was a lot of um, a lot of work and you know, figuratively blood, sweat, and tears, and maybe actual tears when you were going through that process. So, congratulations. Um, if any of our listeners would like to purchase a copy, we'll definitely put a link in the show notes. Uh, but as a reminder, there is a free digital copy available for our patrons on our Patreon page. Uh, did I say it right? Yep. Yeah. Speaking yes, of patrons. Yes, I didn't think about it. I didn't think yep. about it. Didn't uh, think about it. So we're getting there. Our patrons can get a free copy of the, the, the digital copy on our Patreon page. And so if any of you listening become a patron, uh, that you can also download a free copy of Nick's new book, The Perfection of Our Faithful Wills, on our Patreon page as well. Yeah, and I, just speaking of our, our patrons, we, we'd like to give uh, especially a shout out to our the ones who have continually been with us through this, especially who've continued giving during this slow time uh, for us putting out episodes. It's been, as Thomas said, an incredibly um, very long year or long end of the year. And so we're so grateful for your generosity and we're so thankful that you've partnered with us and stuck with us throughout this period. And it's been just, um, it's a, it's kind of a blast to be back in the saddle again, as they say. Yes, it is. Uh, and we really are truly grateful for those of you who have supported us through this time. Um, hopefully it will pick up a little bit for us. Um, but thank you for sticking with us. Uh, and just as a reminder, when we began receiving financial support, uh, we made the pledge that we would give away 10% of what we bring in to other people and organizations uh, that we believe are doing kingdom work, work for the kingdom of God. Um, and those of you who have been listening to us for any length of time uh, or who know us on social media, you know that we're strong supporters of women in ministry. Uh, and so we were pretty excited uh, about what we were able to do with our most recent tithe from the support that we've gotten. So I'm going to let Nick talk about that for just a minute. Yeah, I mean, the goal is, I mean, if we hit one of those silly goals I put up where it's the, what is it? I, I forget what exactly, the, the Christian Perfection goal on Patreon, uh, which I, I can't remember, it's some obscene amount of money, which would basically allow Thomas and I to do this for, well, do this for the rest of our lives, basically. Um, but everything that we get, we um, have pledged to tithe. And so for, um, in the future, it'd be really cool. We'd love to put um, some seminarians through school with, or at least, you know, contribute a little bit. Um, but for that, we talked to um, uh, Kate Wallace Nunley. She's a, a founder and member of the Junior Project. And Allison and I had her on our uh, Split Frame of Reference podcast to talk about being a mom, being a preacher, being a theologian, and kind of the messiness of all of that and the joys of all of that. And we decided to send her uh, our tithes for whatever she needs it for, whether it's for um, new classes or gas in her car to drive down to seminary or for books for seminary, whatever, whatever she needs uh, for her theological education. We wanted to give her a, a gift, a token of our support. Uh, it's not as much as we would love to give. We'd love to, I mean, were money to grow on, on trees. I mean, literally speaking, we would be giving money to everyone that we could to get them through seminary, but wanted to give a special shout out and support uh, a friend of ours who's an excellent pastor, theologian, and someone that we love and cherish, and we want her to go on in her uh, her academic and theological career. And so, yeah, we sent uh, Kate 150 bucks, and yeah, we were just so excited to be able to partner with her in that and see what she does uh, through the calling of the Spirit. 
And once again, uh, that was possible for us to do because of the generosity of our patrons. So thank you so much to those of you who helped uh, make that possible. You are supporting theological education for a, a woman who's going to do uh, great things. So again, that's not that's not just our gift. That's your gift uh, as well for, for supporting us on this podcast. Thank you again. Amen. Well, I think it's a time for some really, really bad pastor jokes. It has been a long time since we've done some some bad pastor jokes. Uh, do you want to start? I would love to start. All right. So uh, this one's not quite a pastor joke, but I, I read it somewhere and I finally found it and it really made me laugh. So here it is. Okay. Uh, so two guys are walking through a game park. Uh, they're not poachers because, you know, we don't believe in violence here. But, you know, let's say they're, 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 uh, people walking around with cameras and they're just taking photos. And they come across a lion that hasn't eaten for just days and days and days. And the lion, being hungry, starts chasing the two guys. And they run as fast as they can. And the one guy starts getting tired and decides to just say a prayer because he knows it's done. He knows it's over. And he says, he prays, Lord, please turn this lion into a Christian. And he looks around, he sees that the lion is still chasing him. This guy's been reading, you know, the book of Daniel a little too much. But, you know, the lion is still chasing him. And he sees the lion stop, kind of look around, and he sees the lion get on his knees. And happy to see his prayer answered, he turns around and heads towards the lion. And as he comes closer to the lion, he hears the lion saying a prayer. Lord, thank you for the food I'm about to receive. It's so dumb and so bad, but it made me laugh. Oh, that was that was a genuine laugh. Like I was, I was not ready for that. That that really caught me off guard. Oh, Very you're good. welcome. All right, well, I don't think I don't think mine is as good, um, but it's 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 an oldie but a goodie. And then there's a story behind it. I'll tell you after I tell you the joke. So, all right. Um, how do you make holy water? Holy water. Um, how you boil the hell out of it? Nice. Um, so what's funny about that is I was actually having a conversation with a guy the other day and he asked me seriously, like, he's like, he just didn't know. He's like, so how do you make holy water? And like, I've never been in such a position in my life that I was able to actually use this. So I looked at him a complete deadpan. I said, well, you boil the hell out of it. And he wasn't sure if I was, if I was serious or joking, um, well, you're in the I North just, Pole, so there's water everywhere. So I'm guessing yeah. if you just, you know, with global warming coming, you can just stick a thermometer <laughs> and everything will be holy water eventually. But I'm, uh, so I, I've never, like, I was, I've had very few moments where I, I was as proud as when I could actually tell a really bad pastor's joke in the wild um, without it being this. So anyway, you make holy water by boiling the hell out of it. Anyway, um, it has been such a long time, um, so I think probably before we jump into our content, we should recap where we've been. We're, we're doing this series, this long, drawn-out series, it seems like, um, but it's so important where we're, we're building what we're calling a Christ-centered theology, a Christ-centered theology. We have made the case in earlier episodes that if we want to know what God is like, we need to start with Jesus, that Jesus is the clearest, the most complete of God's self-revelations, that Jesus shows us most clearly, most completely, most compellingly what God is like. And so if we want to, if we want to do theology properly, if we want to know what God is really like, we need to look at Jesus. And so we started with Jesus's ministry. We've looked at, uh, some of his life. We've looked at his, some of his teachings. We spent a little bit of time in, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, just looking at the, 
the kinds of things that Jesus reveals about the nature and character of God. And so if you want to know a little bit more about that, you can go back to some more previous episodes, um, but that is what has gotten us to this point. Amen. Uh, and continuing along these lines, in this episode, we're going to take a closer look at a couple of Jesus' parables to see uh, what they reveal about the nature and character of God. Uh, for us who are of a Wesleyan perspective of sorts, the character of God is is very uh, critical for us. It's something that we take very seriously, not to the exclusion of other things, but if this God is good and holy, then that's where we start. Uh, but before we get into the parables themselves, we should probably just briefly recap and refresh our memories a little bit about what parables are as a genre. So Thomas, what is a parable? A parable? Why, it's two male cattle, of course, a pair of well, that would be plural, but you can't really see it. I'm, what? <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, so, all right, all right, yeah, I'll give you another chance. Uh, so, Thomas, what is a parable? A parable? A parable, uh, isn't it like that U-shaped line on a graph? I think I remember this from uh, from algebra. I think we're doing the Patreon Patreon thing again. Um, so, I think you're talking about parabolas. Oh, parabolas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, really trying to make up for lost time with these really bad pasture jokes. Yeah, good, good job. Round, <laughs> round of applause for you there. Well, you know, to, to quote the prophet Jeremiah, within me there lies something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. So is that like a sneeze or something? Cause I just, yeah. I cannot either. Yeah. All right. Cool. Good. <laughs> puns, puns, puns. All the puns. Uh, all right. Fine. Um, Okay, so it's, uh, to answer seriously, it's it's a bit of an oversimplification, but essentially a parable is a story with a point. A story with a point. It's a way of communicating a spiritual or moral lesson uh, in a memorable way by using a narrative or a story. Right, and it's, the trick with parables is they'll use lots of little superfluous details to kind of paint the picture. But those little details aren't the thing that is meant to be focused on. I think when at least we read parables, we kind of get focused on the little details and kind of miss the bigger picture. I mean, the English word parable just actually comes from the Greek word uh, parabole, which is just a compound word made of the preposition para, which just means alongside of, and the Greek verb balo which means to throw or to cast or something like that. Um, and some Greek lexicons define it as comparison or juxtaposition or something along those lines. And I think that fits in pretty well with the way Jesus uses parables and these sorts of things. He uses familiar analogies or comparisons, um, everyday objects, for example, you know, a woman tending house and finding a coin being an example to illustrate spiritual truths or realities, especially as we're talking about the nature and character of God. Bingo. So, what do you call a short story with a point written on a thin piece of paper? I'm really going to regret trying to answer this, so I'm not going to. What do you call a short story with a point written on it on a thin piece of paper? A terrible parable. Terrible thin piece of paper. Get it? It's terrible. Yeah, is is this like a Chinese fortune cookie kind of thing? Like, (laughs) I'm going to hang up the phone right now. It's a terrible parable. Sorry, that was a terrible parable. Yeah, it terrible. is terrible. It a- is ter- it's a terrible parable. Yes, I agree with you. It's a terrible parable. <laughs> That's a terrible, terrible parable. There we go. Could- See, that makes more sense. Okay, yes. Okay. 
Okay, I'm done. I promise. No more, no more really bad pastor jokes. I'm all, it's all out. It's out of my system. All right. Um, so, which parables should we start with if we're going to talk about parables and how they reveal the nature and character of God? Uh, we could start with many of them, but I, I think the one that is most powerful and familiar to us are, are the three, um, what we call the, the lost and found parables in Luke chapter 15 about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And that sort of kind of recapitulates the comment you and I were talking about earlier about everyday objects or things in a certain community or context being used in unfamiliar ways. So the familiar becomes unfamiliar a little bit. And so I think starting with those would be a really good place to start. I think that's a good call. We're sort of familiar with them, but I think we can pull out some things that maybe maybe people have not thought about before, or we can tie it into this nature and character of God in a way that people haven't thought of. Um, so before we look at the actual parables themselves, though, uh, we should probably make sure that we understand the context. Uh, this is always important when it comes to biblical interpretation. Context is king all of the time, but especially so, I think, when it comes to parables. Uh, because Jesus often uses parables that uh, speak directly to the context that he's in. That his parables are often directly related um, to his situation and especially to his audience. Um, and so we find the context for these three parables at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. And, and when we understand what's going on at the beginning, it's going to help us understand exactly the, the kind of point that Jesus is making in the parable. So here's how, here's the context. The first two verses of Luke chapter 15 set the context. Luke tells us this. He says, all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And of course, my first thought is Jesus is probably eating with the Pharisees and scribes and that they kind of answered their own question there. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus is like, <laughs> yeah, you're here, aren't you? But anyway, uh, <laughs> in, in other words, the, the religious leaders were upset with Jesus for hanging around the wrong crowd, the wrong people, people they viewed as both traitors and God rejectors and just, you know, naughty sinners. And when Jesus heard it, he, he launches into kind of a series of three parables, um, directed at them, but not exclusively to them. It's, it's a wider range. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. And Jesus told them this parable starting in verse three and four. Uh, suppose someone among you had 100 sheep and lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and then search for the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he is thrilled and places it on his shoulders. And when he arrives home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Celebrate with me, because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you, that's always a good hermeneutical key when you see in the same way, or similarly, or likewise. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. And so this is said with an eye looking at both the sinners at his feet and the sinners who are also called Pharisees who are grumbling. Very good. And so setting up the, you know, back to that context thing, right? We know that the the tax collectors and the, the sinners, they were viewed as God rejectors, whereas the, um, the Pharisees and the, and the legal experts, they were, you know, they sort of viewed themselves as, as the, the elite, those who were close to God, those who were in the inner circle. Um, and so Jesus is, is, 
he's using this parable that's common to them, right? They, they understood the, the role of a shepherd. Everybody, you know, looking back in their scriptures, right? The Pharisees took their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures very seriously. They knew that in the Hebrew scriptures, the shepherd was, um, you know, David was a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, right? So J- Jesus is drawing on this very familiar idea of shepherding. And he, he speaks to them in a way where he assumes that they would do, that they would know that any shepherd worth, uh, his or her salt, well, his salt, you know, then any shepherd worth his salt would go out and find a sheep that had wandered off. Hmm. Yeah. And, and it's a way of kind of, and, and it's, it, I mean, there is a economic or even, um, ec- yeah, there's, there's a transactional or economic aspect to this too. Because if you lose a sheep, that's, that's not kind of, I mean, we think of sheep as nice woolly things that we get clothes from. Uh, sheep during that time were, um, that was the basis of part of the agrarian economy, right? So this is something that's, of course, he would go back for, um, the sheep because you don't want to just give up that, um, that sort of thing. But what I think is more profound is instead of being, um, okay, yeah, I got my sheep back. It says he was thrilled and places it on his shoulders. And there's a sense of presence. There's a sense of that sort of stuff going along. And, you know, this is compared with in verse seven, in the same way, I tell you, there'll be more joy. So thrilled and joy are kind of the the human response, or rather it would be God's response at finding that quote lost sheep uh, and that one sinner and all that sort of stuff. And there's a sense in which this is not, he's taken kind of an agrarian economic kind of image and transported God into it. Basically, here's who God is. You know, God is like this shepherd. God is not a shepherd, but God is like a shepherd. And if that's the case, then you've got some really profound ideas of God in God's economy. God seeks to bring the people that were estranged and sinful and all that sort of stuff back home. And so instead of being, yeah, let it go away. I'm so wealthy. I don't need it. It is no, this is vital to my survival in an agrarian context. But for God, it's basically just who God is. It's one of those things where um, I think the hardest part for us to recognize, at least as modern Christians, is we we try to understand and rationalize God and go, oh, here's how God would do this, this, and this. And sometimes we just kind of have to sit back and go, well, God would do that because that's just who God is. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so he's taking, again, this, this concept of the familiar. And as you said, in this parable, he actually provides the explanation, right? Um, he provides that the, you know, in this story, the... The shepherd is like God, or God is like the shepherd. And so he's taking something that they understood. It's sort of a roundabout way to go about addressing their concerns. Um, but he uses a familiar, something familiar to them that they already assumed to be true. This is what a good shepherd does and says, well, this is what God is like. God is like that good shepherd who seeks after those things that are lost, which leads into the second parable, which has a very similar theme. Um, and Jesus tells it this way. He says, what woman, if she owes 10 silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. Um, and so we have a, obviously a very similar theme here um, and a very similar explanation. Jesus, again, provides the interpretation um, in that last verse in verse 10. Um, 
Now, I know that there has been uh, a lot of um, different interpretation on, on exactly what the lost coin uh, was in Jesus's culture. Um, you know, from your studies, Nick, what kinds of options have you heard about that lost coin um, meaning? Uh, I, I haven't heard, I've heard dozens and, and none of them really make a lot of sense to me. Um, I mean, make one is um, salvation. Uh, the other one, which does salvation doesn't really seem to fit. Uh, the other one I hear most often is that it's just a regular gold coin and having a gold coin is really desirable and good. <laughs> kind of like a sheep in an economic agrarian context. Um, I haven't heard any, um, I've, I don't recall any specific ones that made me, that were so memorable that I had to share them. Like, oh, I got to save that for the podcast. <laughs> um, but the one thing I, I did notice was one, Jesus uses uh, a woman as an example. Yes. And that's, of course, a, a huge thing. Um, and the other one I noticed was um, uh, she is searching for something. And that something uh, I think is quite profound is um, this often gets overlooked is, and this might be a bigger theological question, but she owns 10 coins and loses one of them. This coin is already hers. And so if we frame this in terms of repentance, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it is true, you know, but it's something she already possessed. So it's almost as if you get a, I mean, just as an example, you have immortality and all these sorts of things in the Garden of Eden, right? You have all this sort of stuff being given to you and you lose it. And the whole point of Christ is a recapitulation of what Eve and Adam lost. Um, and so kind of the circle comes back. And so maybe this is a way of Jesus saying not only, you know, she is returning back to what she had originally. So kind of the idea of returning back to your, your first love, you know, God, excuse me, but also that um, the, the, the searching for it is integral to the entire part of it. Yeah, you know, she wouldn't find it if she didn't look for it, and she wouldn't look for it if she didn't realize that she had lost it. And so, I mean, as a good synergist, my first thought is, "Amen." <laughs> there you go. Um, and, and yeah, so the the explanations I've heard are similar. Like perhaps, like that was her. Uh, perhaps she was poor, right? And, and ten coins represents like ten days' wages, and losing one, right, is, is ten, you know, a tenth of your savings. But but the emphasis in both of these is that the one who had lost something expended effort to go out and find it. Mm -hmm. um, didn't just wait, you know, hoping that it would show up or any of those things, but expended effort to go out and find it. And again, in, in both of these parables, Jesus provides the interpretation and says similarly in the same way, right? Because parables are comparisons. In the same way, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels. That this is this is what God is like. God is the one who seeks and searches um, for that which is lost. And again, oh. that that makes uh, sense when we when we think about the the overall context of um, religious elite religious folks um, being upset with Jesus, who represents God, spending time with those that they believe are are uh, uh, traitors and God rejectors. Well, uh, not only Jesus and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and not only that, but here, if we if we keep reading consistently, G, or God is likened to as a shepherd, and here God is likened to a woman who owns ten silver coins and loses one, and then sweeps the house and does and expends all the effort and seeks that coin back out. Um, and I think that provides just a, a powerful idea of, of course, the imago dei that both together, male and female, represent you know, God's image on earth as image bearers, as viceroys, as agents in creation. Um, we would say even as priests, perhaps, I think is a good way of putting it. And the fact that Jesus doesn't have to then pull a, 
a, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to be very nice with this. I'm not going to say a, a certain uh, seminary professor somewhere in the Midwest at a certain Baptist seminary saying something about how manly men <laughs> are certain ways and how God is all these sorts of things. And I kind of look at this and I'm like, well, I don't know about you, but I believe in a very authoritative and inspired word of God. And if Jesus is comparing God to a woman here, that's not my problem. I think it's kind of awesome. And it's a comparison. Yeah. You can't press the metaphor too far. Same thing as with the father, as we'll talk about sure. in another parable. But the image there is one of something that often gets overlooked. And I, I don't want us to just miss that. And on the other end, I don't want us to basically pull a Midwestern uh, seminary professor, who's I'm sure is a very nice person in real life when he's not trying to own people on Twitter, is really awesome. And I think this image is just so stark that we just kind of miss it. It's almost too radical for us in a way, I think. Yes. Uh, absolutely. So the, and the point is in these first two parables, um, in this, in this context, Jesus is showing us what God is like. And it's both of these parables that lead us into this third parable, which is probably the one that we're most familiar with. Uh, the parable of the lost son, um, or as it's often called, the, the parable of the prodigal son. So why don't you uh, read us that that parable? It's kind of long, but I think we need to read the whole thing for us to, to talk about it at any um, depth. Sure, sure. Yeah, a certain man had two sons. Uh, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And then the father divided his estate between them. And soon after, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. And there he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. And when he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage, or famine is the word, arose in that country and began to be in need. He hired himself out to one to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to, to feed pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I am starving to death? I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. And so he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion, and his father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. And then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his figure and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, your brother has arrived and your father slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in, but his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, look, I have served you all of these years and I never disobeyed your instructions. Yet you've never given to me as much as young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Man, it's such a familiar parable, but it's so powerful. Every time I hear it, 
Uh, we talked earlier about um, the importance of context and understanding parables, and we talked about you know the the immediate context that Jesus was in. But um, also, it's important to remember the the cultural context in which it comes, and we understand that cultural context so much is added to this parable. Um, and actually, at this point, I want to quote um, what somebody that I believe uh, is one of the most so far one of the most influential. Uh, theologians of the uh, of the 21st century. Um, uh, she unfortunately is is no longer with us. But uh, Rachel Held Evans. Um, this comes from her book. Um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the title of the book. Now. I've got the quote right here. Um, inspired. Her book, Inspired on Scripture. Here's what she says. She says, unfortunately, our familiar familiarity with these often told tales can numb us to their provocations, which are rooted in an ancient honor-shame culture, yet have survived the centuries to make frequent appearances in children's sermons and watered-down morality tales. It may be touching, though unremarkable, to us that the father welcomed his prodigal son home with open arms, when, unlike the first people to hear the story, we don't live in a culture where the disavowal of an inheritance is akin to wishing one's father dead. And so she just reminds us um, in that quote there that, that to truly understand this parable is to understand the, the cultural um, structures at work in the first century in Jesus's audience, one of which is this idea of, of honor and shame, where when this son walks up to his father and says, give me my inheritance, he is literally saying to his father, dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me what I, what I would have if you were gone and let me go on my way. And, and I think that we don't often appreciate the depth of the, of the insult that that would have been, um, that the, the, injury to the relationship that that would have caused. Hmm. Yeah. And, and on top of all that, you have that wonderful phrase while he was still a long way off. So basically his father is kind of looking for him a little bit, kind of that, that eye out on the horizon, we might say, and ran to him, didn't let him get all the way home. And a lot of people say, this is the parable of the prodigal son. And my first thought is, that's what it's traditionally been called, but I think it's really a exploration of the character of God. Because if God is the Father, as I don't think God is the Son, that'd be kind of weird. Uh, God as the Father here um, essentially tells us that he's quite happy to <laughs> bring out the best for us. And what I was struck by with um, the, the older brother was how the Father responds to him. And basically says, you're always with me and you have, and everything I have is yours. And if we're talking about, you know, the Pharisees and we would say the Jewish folks and the people listening in, everything I have is yours. You're already in, but we have to celebrate because another one of you, one of your, uh, your, your fellow countrymen has come back home. And the idea of, of God being the one that always receives, or rather I would say accepts his son back in this case uh, is reveals a lot more about the character of God than really any sort of major theological discourse we might want to harp on. But <laughs> I think that's quite profound. Yes. Yeah. The fact that he uses this story, right? This story mm -hmm. to provoke these thoughts. Um, Cause when they initially hear the story, right? You, you hear this, this son who, you know, dishonors this father in a culture where dishonor is the ultimate 
form of relational injury. Um, and so you, you hurt with the father. You hear this and, and you want to see the son come to ruin, right? And so they, they expect then in that culture, they expect when the son comes back that the father, you know, is just going to turn him away for being a, a traitor, for being a rebel, for running away and squandering what had been so good, right? And that's exactly what the, the Pharisees had been hoping that Jesus would do uh, that's what they had been doing to these tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus then flips the script, right? And he says this father instead, like you pointed out, father, um, runs, right? This, uh, this is not something that, that noble men do, right? They don't run. That's, that's, that's beneath them, but he runs to his son and gives him all of these things. And so we know that this parable is intended to make a point, right? It's intended to make a point in a specific context. And, and, uh, so each, person, especially in this parable, each character in this parable represents somebody in that audience. Hmm. Um, and so we know that the, you know, obviously, um, even though Jesus doesn't say this, the, the, the lead up is that the, the father represents God. Um, and, it, and so Jesus portrays God in this parable as a, as a loving, forgiving, um, merciful, gracious, heavenly parent, um, not one who holds a grudge, not one who's vindictive, but one who shows mercy. Um, mm. Similarly, we know that the the son, uh, the, the prodigal one, the one who runs away, represents the tax collectors and the sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's often, there's there's a character in the story that we often don't pay a lot of attention to, and that's the older brother. Um, and mm. he represents somebody in the story as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a God who searches out the coins, the sheep, and welcomes the son back home. Uh, and so in, in, in these uh, three parables, Jesus shows us, he paints a clear picture of, of what God is like. Um, these stories reveal the nature and character of God as a God who searches, a God who welcomes, a God who rejoices, a God who forgives, and a God who restores. Um, and, and we see that that, affects different people differently, but that, that this is what God is like, right? So when we, hmm. again, what, what's the, what's the point of this whole series that we're doing? Um, it's not just so we simply understand the Bible better, but so that we understand what God is like, because how we understand God is going to affect the way that we interact with God. If we believe God to be judgmental and vindictive and capricious, we are going to not necessarily be as free to run back to confess our sins, to, to change our heart and lives because we're going to be afraid of the consequences. But if we, if we know, if we believe that God really is like Jesus reveals God to be a God who, who does these things, um, searches, welcomes, rejoices, forgives, and restores, then, then we are free to leave behind, um, our, our life of rebellion, knowing that, that we have a God who will, who will welcome us back, uh, with open arms. Um, I remember the, the reason I, I find this so important, I remember a few, uh, gosh, it's probably been two years, a year or two now, um, a, a certain popular, reformed theologian had, had tweeted out something to the effect of read to your children the story of these children who rebelled against um, David uh, and, and how their rebellion against their father led to their ruin you know and, and the point was like teach your children not to rebel because it might lead to their ruin and, and I remember thinking well hold on a second why don't we read to our children the story of, of this prodigal son 
and let them know that when, when their rebellion inevitably leaves them feeling empty, um, that they have a God, that they have a father who's waiting for them with open arms, ready to throw a party. I just think that makes all of the difference in the world. I, I think, uh, I know I'm rambling here, but I, this is, this is more than just stories. I think this kind of theology matters. Um, I think it matters deeply in terms of how we relate to God and how we relate God to others. Yeah. And if, if the character of the God we worship doesn't look like Jesus, then we've got a problem. Uh, it, it, just to say it bluntly, when we have uh, God presented as a a faithful woman, a loving father, a shepherd, and so on and so forth, we're invited to take those images seriously. And it's not that they're easy images. They're, in fact, quite difficult. I mean, how many of us would be like the father or like the person who has wealth who just decides, eh, I can live without this, you know? How many of us would actually do that? Right. And I, I think the idea that God is um, willing to look not that great running to his <laughs> impoverished son who slighted him really poorly tells us that God is not so concerned with God's own glory or mm. reputation, but mm. that God cares much more about who God is and acting in concert with who God is. Preach, and Nick. God's glory is not bound up in protecting his reputation like a feudal oh. dictator. God's oh. glory is revealed in what God gives up for the sake of those who are most in need of him. Oh, man, that's beautiful. And that's not to slap you know who. It is to say <laughs> we need to really understand the character of this God revealed by Jesus in these parables for us and not build things on preconceived formulas. And I think a lot of Christian theology, at least around me or when I was growing up, was we have a formula and then we go in search of text to support that formula. We see that with all sorts of debates. And that doesn't mean the formula is wrong. It doesn't mean anything like that. But it does mean we need to take these texts seriously and rather than go, well, how does this fit with my view of this? You know, my thought is, what if we filtered our material through the lens of Jesus and what kind of God would we get? And this is exactly why a Christ-centered theology is so important. Why starting with Jesus and the God that Jesus reveals uh, is so important. Um, and so in, in our next episode, we're going to look at a couple of the more obscure parables. These are pretty common. Um, and there are some parables that are a little harder to understand that may, that may um, portray God a little bit uh, different. So we're going to take a look at those. We don't, we don't want to avoid the, the hard stuff, the obscure stuff. Um, and then after that, we're going to um, dive into what has become one of the more heated debates in theology these days, which is um, the nature of the atonement. We're going to ask the question, what does the death of Jesus on the cross reveal about the nature and character of God? And we'll start diving into atonement theory. So we've got some cool things uh, coming up in our next few episodes. And so this will be uh, the first of many really interesting and we hope uh, provocative in the best way possible uh, episodes and materials. Um, but this has been another episode of the Synergist podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. Grace and peace to all of you. 